battered hands are all you own This broken heart is turned to stone Hang your glory on the wall There comes a time when castles fall And all that's left is shifting in the sand You're out of time, you're out of place Look at your face, that's the measure of a man Good morning. Welcome to Life on Edited. I'm your host, John Averly. How do we measure a man? Do we measure him by his physical size, his athleticism? Do we measure him by the success that he has, the cars, the money, the houses? Do we measure him by his sexual prowess? How many women he can have? How many women want him? Or should we maybe take a deeper look and measure him by how many times he gets up off the floor after life has knocked him down? what he does with the knowledge that he has acquired during that journey of getting himself back up. Maybe we should look at him and say, hey, thank you. You've taken the time to teach me something I didn't know about before. You picked yourself back up, and now you're helping me. Maybe that's what it really is to be a man today. You can have everything else. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be something to be your best but maybe just maybe in the end really being your best is because you've been at your worst you've been able to pick yourself back up and help other people and i think that's the key to life that's the key to being a man facing your faults facing your fears and then stepping forward and saying hey i'm going to help other people i'm going to show them the most vulnerable side that I have. And today, my guests have been through this. Um, tremendous people, what they've gone through uh, as a couple, individually, they've just, they've done it and they've held it together. My guests today are Clint and Joni Malarchik. Now, the name Clint Malarchik might ring a bell, former NHL goaltender, and a few other stories along the way with them, and we'll get into those. Clint, Joni, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, did you guys catch that game this morning, Russia-U.S.? <laughs> we sure did. It was uh, early here, but uh, we're in Pacific time zone, so a little earlier than out uh, out east. But, uh, yeah, we were able to get up and watch it. Man, let me tell you something. I was running so late, staying home, uh, trying to watch it and, and then prep for the show. I actually forgot all my notes, had to redo everything when I got here, was able to at least hear the end of the shootout. I went eight rounds, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, pretty exciting. Excellent, excellent. Couldn't wish I could have seen it, but again, at least I was able to hear it. Clint, let's get right into it. And this is one of the reasons I wanted uh, to have you and your wife on because your story is tremendous. And I want to get into the fact you have OCD. Um, you also suffer from depression, and this is you know you've had these things since you were a kid, correct? Well, I, I, in some forms, yes. Uh, maybe not the severity at certain times, but, you know, I went through some real anxious times. Uh, and back then, they really didn't know what was wrong with this kid. And I was hospitalized with severe anxiety and uncontrollable, uh, just almost crying all the time and just upset. And when they would ask me questions to try and help me, I, I had no answers for them. It was just, it was just in me. 
Well, and and then you became a goaltender. All makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the knock on goaltenders? Always a little, uh, always a little out there to begin with. That's what they say. If you're going to be a good one, you better be a little bit out there. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. I've been around hockey no, no. so long. I love it. But hey, it goes with the territory, John. <laughs> so you're a child. Now, now you grew up in um, Alberta, Canada, in the Edmonton area, which is uh, a pretty progressive area. I'm just trying to understand that your, your, your doctors, uh, your teachers, no one noticed the pattern in particular with the OCD? Well, I don't think so. I, I think they, they saw some, you know, things that were different uh, from other kids. But uh, I don't even think there was a, a term for, you know, obsessive-compulsive disorder. I don't think it was even uh, – that, that word sure didn't come up when I was a kid growing up. I mean, if it, if, if it was a known uh, disease or uh, sickness, uh, no one knew about it. Now, this affects your schooling a lot, Clint? Oh, yeah, I, I missed quite a bit of school. I was terrible, uh, terribly anxious going to school. Uh, Sunday night rituals were just <laughs> painful, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, severe depression, uh, things like that going on at a very young age. So what was the breakthrough for you? I mean, you, you obviously gravitated towards hockey, um, again, towards becoming a goaltender. What's the breakthrough? You go from being, I guess a lot of people would have said, a, kind of a sickly kid, to someone who shows tremendous athletic promise in a very difficult position, being a uh, goaltender. So where was the breakthrough? Well, I don't think the breakthrough really came uh, till later on. I think I suffered with this to certain levels, certain mm -hmm. degrees, uh, sometimes not so bad. But I was, I, I, being obsessive uh, certainly helped me, too, because... I, you know, the home life wasn't great. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of things going on. I'm sure that had a, a lot to the anxiety problems. But uh, I had an outlet, and that was hockey. And up in Alberta, you know, the outdoor rinks were <laughs> right there everywhere. And that's where I grew up. I, I was always at the rink, and it seemed to be my, um, my getaway from my problems. It was the one place I wasn't uh, anxious. I was just a kid having fun and... Uh, trying to be an NHL hockey player because you have the dream of it and, you know, you're watching the you're the pros on TV. So you grow up with that. And I think that was a, a big factor. And, uh, you know, without even re realizing it, that obsessive amount of time I spent on the ice made me a, a pretty good hockey player, especially at a young age. And I was able to uh, kind of just channel everything into hockey. And uh, school was an anxious time for me. Uh, home life was anxious. So... I, I did have hockey, and I think that got me through my teens. Uh, eventually, I got drafted, and I was just able to channel everything towards hockey. And uh, that was my escape. How many times have you heard other people interviewed, other athletes or, or whatever, and you've heard them say basically the same thing you just said, where they suffered or had something they had to deal with, but they found this outlet that became their obsession that became everything to them and their basically their lives. It became a big positive and escape. And that obviously was very, very, I mean, you know, you really needed that back then. Well, I, I, I shudder to think if I didn't have something uh, to get away. Uh, and thank God it wasn't drugs or, or things like that that are so accessible to kids now at a young age. Back then, I really didn't, uh, I, I had no, no thoughts of drugs or alcohol. But uh, you couldn't get it if you wanted it, and you know, small 
rural areas in Alberta. But uh, uh, now, now with society the way it is and drugs so readily available in the schools and, and, and everything, I think that's unfortunately where a lot of kids uh, can go for their escape. And uh, me being growing up in the small area and, and uh, on the outdoor ice, it was just thankful for that. Clint, um, do you see a genetic component in your family at all? Have you been able to look back and go, okay, mom, dad, sister, brother, maybe uh, grandma, grandpa? Have you been able to trace anything? No, not really. I, I'm, the, I'm the one that, uh, uh, you know, has been dealing with this sort of thing. I, and, and it's funny that, you know, there's a lot of people that can relate to this at certain levels, and, mm-hmm. and I do I do have uh, friends and family that are understanding to a degree because they've suffered uh, maybe not the severity of depression, but somewhat depressed. So, and it was it was an awful time for them. Um, and but no genetic on my side. But I I do think that when you're dealing with a uh, a component such as well, basically they call mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certain degrees or certain levels of like with me depression and OCD. I don't produce enough serotonin and you know with a diabetic it's it's an insulin factor so what's the difference um really it's it's uh and and we know that diabetes is is you know genetic and and can be inherited so i i think that this is uh, no different than diabetes it's it's a chemical imbalance uh one dealing with the pancreas the other dealing with the brain with me it's the brain I agree 100%. When I look at mental illness and the way it is looked at today, uh, how you proceed to help someone with it, it is a chemical imbalance. And you can look at that from many different levels. You could have someone go through a very stressful event that can change your body chemistry, that can bring out something that's inside of you that's been sitting dormant. That has been proven. But as you moved on through uh, your goaltending career, going through the minors, getting into the NHL. Uh, no one picked up on anything there either. Uh, again, goalies being a little fluky, but and you guys pretty much stay to yourselves, but no one kind of said, you know, you know, Clint's kind of moody once in a while, or, or did you watch how he moves his, uh, his shower shoes around 16 different ways before he gets in the shower? I mean, nothing where anyone said, hey, maybe we should step back and take a look? Well, it's, it's kind of like uh, in sports, superstitions are... are That's true. <laughs> so acceptable. If you're not doing something a little bit superstitious, well, then you probably look a little, uh, a little out of place. But I, I concentrated on to try and look and be as normal. So ritualistic around the locker room and that, not much. I was probably the most normal functioning <laughs> guy. So honestly, I'm on no, 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 I'm laughing because I know you're right. I know how the locker room works, and I'm trying to imagine all these guys shifting pads, moving things, and you're just kind of sitting there tying your skates. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, you know, I kept it inside, and I hit it very well. I think I learned to do that at a, at a young age. Yeah, but what's the price, though, Clint? Let's talk about that. What's the price of having to hold that in to know – you have to just as you know whatever a ritual may be. Let's say you have to tap something five times to hold that in. What kind of drain on your energy level is that? Well, you know, I I, I just have to go back to hockey again. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in my my element, the one place that I'm actually free and at ease. And it was a way more away from the rink that I I struggled. 
the personal life. Yes, yeah. the personal life. The, the, even driving to the rink. You know, once I'm at the rink, I'm fine. And so for me, it was uh, it, it was a little bit different than that. Then the other guys, they got to the rink, and now they're getting nervous because it's a big game. Uh, it's on NHL TV, whatever. Um, now they're starting to be nervous, and now I'm at home. It's the total flip. It's the total. You're comfortable in the stressful situation. And I hate to use the word not normal because that's not the case. You just have a different brain chemistry. But you're stressful here, uh, about to go into a huge battle, uh, you know, the NHL wars. Your teammates got all these different rituals, tapping on stuff, looking for luck any way they can get. But this is your element. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, then tell me, though, or tell us about your personal life. What's that like, though? Because that's, you know, that's an all-consuming part of someone's life, too. What are you dealing with there? Is it hard to get up in the morning? Is it affecting you to the point where it could affect your play on the ice? Uh, what do you have to kind of roll with on that? No, those were the, the things I started to deal with. As soon as I knew, usually the day before a game, mm-hmm. uh, co- coach would tell me, you're playing tomorrow, you're starting. And uh, so right away... The, the anxiety level uh, started to rise, and I would obsess. First of all, I got to get enough sleep. I hope I sleep tonight. I hope I sleep tonight. And then sometimes I wouldn't sleep because I'm hoping I'd sleep. You know, there's a lot of people that yeah. relate to that. Everybody's had restless nights where they look at the clock and go, oh, "I got to get some sleep." And before you know it, you're going to get up in two, three hours. So those, that's where the, my first level would start. Um, the other thing was, you know, like I got to make sure that. Um, you know, I'm mentally prepared. I got to start, and that's where I struggled. I tried to start mentally preparing to play the day before, the night before, but then that starts to keep you awake. So I had to find ways to turn that off. And I think I would start maybe looking back now. I would start obsessing about things not related to the game. In other words, I got a place. Why am I anxious? I got to find something to be anxious about. So I would start to uh, obsess about things and, and, and to, to, I guess, quantify my anxiety. I understand that. Clint, and this, this is a lot of it was subconscious, of course. Clint, we're going to roll into a break real quick, then we're going to come back and pick this up because I want to really get into the personal life, how it affects the on-ice, because I know there's a connection there. You're listening to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. We'll be back in a few moments. Drinking while you're pregnant can give your baby brain damage and birth defects, learning disabilities too. Look, here's the deal. If you drink alcohol while you're pregnant, you may be ruining your baby's chances of ever having a normal life. All forms of alcohol are dangerous, even beer and wine. Play it smart. Alcohol and pregnancy don't mix. This message is brought to you by the Chester County Department of Drug and Alcohol Services. For more information, please call toll-free 1-866-286-3767 or visit nofas.org. The Voices of Shale Energy. Hi, my name is Jackie Mahan, and I'm a management associate at U.S. Steel Tubular Products in Lorain, Ohio. Here in Lorain, we make the steel pipe the oil and natural gas industry is using to protect its wells and the communities that surround them. High-grade pipe that allows energy workers to drill safely and responsibly and to access previously unreachable resources. It's an important job, one that's making places like Lorain equally important. I'm 25 years old, and I can honestly say, without the increased demand for high-quality American steel, our energy industry has created 
graduated, I probably wouldn't have a job. Certainly not in Lorraine, and not in the steel plant where my father worked for 18 years, and where he still works for U.S. Steel. Following in his footsteps makes me proud. There's something hopeful and inspiring about it. I mean, when I went away to college, I never thought I'd return to find a town that's doing better than when I left. But Lorraine, Ohio is. Hear the stories of how other industries are benefiting from Shell Energy at energyfromshale.org. Shale, the energy to do it right. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hey everyone, Maria Menounos here. You're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Clint and Joni Malarchik. Clint played in the NHL for 15 seasons. He also lives with um, OCD and depression, and that's what we're talking about today. And before we took the break, we were kind of getting into eh, what it's like, what it was like for Clint growing up, playing in the NHL, having to deal with OCD in particular, and it affecting his personal life. Now, I want to bring in his wife, Joni. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but I want to know what she saw when she was first with him. Um, Did she even know what OCD was? Did Clint tell her? Did Clint know what he was going through? Joni, what were, you know, what was uh, some of your experiences when you first met him? Um, Well, I teach figure skating. Mm -hmm. So in in a weird way, Clint and I would have conversations about when he first told me what he had, we would have conversations about this on, as a coach, and I teach figure skating, I would look for this in a kid, not knowing exactly what it was and not knowing how it affected their personal life, because as a coach, you're not there to be friends with your students, and you're not there to look into their personal life. You're there to teach them the skill of the sport. So I would look for that, that one kid that was going to do it 25 more times again and again and again and didn't want to get it off the ice and wanted to come that one extra day because that made my job easier. I would tell them to do something and they would make sure by the end of the week they had it done as opposed to another child who would come maybe once or twice and it takes them a month to get it. So then after talking to Clint, part of me felt a little bad for encouraging that part of their personality. I don't... uh agree with that and I'll tell you why and I think Clint's a prime example and there are a lot of people out there because of a disability or a slight handicap they have to live with it drives them and I think that's a good thing you're you're a positive outlet I think Joni for someone for a kid that comes to you uh, looking to learn to be a better figure skater and you see something that drives them I think that's a good thing as long as you know the adults and other people are watching out to make sure that it's not becoming so obsessive that we're missing something. But when oh, yeah, I've yeah. learned about it, and the more Clint's gone through stuff, and the more that I've gotten a better understanding of it, I do realize exactly what you said, and I completely agree with you. I'm a good outlet for him. You just have to be careful that they don't cross the line. Let me ask you, um, you know, being married to Clint, uh, the kind of life you guys have. I saw the uh, website yesterday. I thought it was great. Uh, uh, the, the Cowboy Goalie website, I think that's great. C- do you really 
think you understand, and, and this isn't a negative and it's not a positive, I'm asking from personal experience, do you really think you understand what Clint goes through? Can you feel any of that, or is it still very foreign to you, even though you, you know, you've read about it, you understand it, and you live with him going through it? I don't think that somebody like me who has, doesn't deal with it, who doesn't, is not afflicted by it, will ever completely understand. But I feel that I have a much better understanding after living with them. And I think everybody is different. Everybody who has it, um, the way they affect them is going to be different. So with Clint, I mean, you know, just living with him, going through the ups and downs, going to, you know, the rehab with him, myself being sent to the Betty Ford Clinic, and just really diving in and learning what it does to you and how it affects you. I think I have a little better understanding. And Clint even said that it's similar to when we get a thought in our head or a song stuck in your head and you can't get it out. Mm-hmm. You know, some days, all day long, you have the song and you can't get it out of your head. He says it's similar to that. But his is 100 times more intense, and it's about, it's not just a song, it's about something that's affecting his life, and he can't turn it off, whereas I can turn it off. John? Yeah. I think, I think if, if, if you've never had a broken leg, mm-hmm. but we've all had pain to some degree, and let's say you've got a compound fracture on your leg, you know it's painful. But you don't know that pain. You haven't felt it. So it's hard to really, really get it. But it, 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 I always try to, 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 you know, draw these pictures in your mind of, of you know, and I just did one. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I've never had a broken leg, but, man, I bet it hurts. But <laughs> I, I don't know how bad that, I don't know that pain because I haven't had it. Did you feel, though, at Clint, at times, and maybe not just with Joni, maybe with, other people you're close to, um, you know, you had explained what you're going through. Uh, they can see it, but you still felt like they were disconnected from you because of it. They just, you were frustrated that they just didn't get it of what, you know, the pain you were experiencing at that moment. Did that ever isolate you from people? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I really, I think there is a frustration level, but as I've gotten, uh, you know, through a lot of this, and, you know, I still struggle, but, uh, you know, not like I used to, uh, with the help of medication and, mm. and much counseling and, and, you know, uh, you know, being around people that have suffered with this that do get it is, is it's like going to AA. Um, you know, they get it. The people you're there with, they get it. So that's so, helped you, the actual counseling, uh, sitting in there and going through a group therapy. You, you have found that to be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And your regimen to keep yourself healthy, uh, again, you're very open about all this, which is great. You you take your medication, which we talked about a couple days ago, was a lot of trial by error, correct? Oh, man, yeah, a couple of years. I, I, I wasn't sure if I'd ever find the right uh, medication. Everything I, I went on, I had to be on for about six weeks uh, before they know if it's kicking in or helping or hurting. And uh, so there's a lot of trial and error, and, you know, you get your hopes up every time they change your medication or your dosage, and, uh, okay, maybe this is the answer. And then there's also, um, 
the effect. I think it's helping. I think it's helping. Mm-hmm. I, I feel better, but it's a placebo, I think, because when I really did get the right medication and dosage, I remember my comment was, so this is what it feels like to be normal. <laughs> and I was still, yeah. and I was, I was playing in, in, in uh, uh, the minors it was the end of my, near the end of my career, and actually being sent to the minors got me into a city, into, uh, into t- uh, touch with the best doctor, the leading doctor in, in depression and OCD. So in one way it was a, a, a curse, you know, dang it, I'm going to the minors, but it probably saved my life too. It was a blessing yet a curse. And uh, uh, it was the beginning of me uh, continuing my hockey career and actually enjoying the game more than I ever enjoyed it having more fun than I ever had in my life. And, you know, like I said, this is what it feels like to be normal. Joni, got to give you the flip side of this because, you know, you're living with Clint going through these situations, trial error on medication. I can imagine the different mood swings it can produce. I can imagine the frustration, the high, the low, the maybe, the yes, the no. How is this affecting you? You you feel, and I guarantee you feel, especially as a woman, that you have to be strong for your man here. But what's going on inside Joni? Um, wow. <laughs> it's got to be fair. I, I mean, you know, there's, you know, yeah. there's a flip side to every coin, and this is definitely the flip side. You are the flip side to Clint, his coin. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people, I guess not knowing what really was going on with him, kind of looked at him from the outside saying, he's crazy, what are you doing sticking around? Mm. You know, you should just save yourself and, you know, he's never going to change. And, you know, knowing everything, 24 hours a day, knowing exactly what was going on, I mean, you feel for him. I would assume on the other side now with Clint, and the reason I played this song today coming in the measure of a man, because how do we measure a man? There's so many different ways, and I think most of them are bull, and they set us up for failure, and they set us up not to be truly the best we can be. But I can guarantee with Clint, uh, knowing a little bit that I know about him now, that this whole experience, and with you being there, he wanted you there, I guarantee it, but there were times he wanted to be so far away from you, not because he didn't love you, he didn't love himself at those moments. Clint, would you say I'm on the mark there? Well, yeah, and and a, and a lot is is not a lot of that stuff is not public yet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but I'm, I'm writing a book, and Joni's a big part of the the process and a big part of everything. And uh, what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of my obsessing and anger and uh, uncontrolled frustration was directed directed right at her. Like, she was the problem. She was the, you know, you're the reason. They, because I would be obsessing about her. Um, and we talk about measuring a man. There is jealousy issues on my part. Yep. And when you're not um, uh, 100% stable, that can be magnified into huge, huge uh, anxiety. And, and she didn't know at, the, at the times what to say. When, and no matter what she said, it was the wrong thing. Yeah, you Just boxed her into I, a corner. And I wasn't rational anyways. Yeah, that's, and that's a big part of it, and that's why I was asking, because, there, again, that, that flip side to the coin, and she's doing everything that she can do, you're doing everything that you can do, 
but it just takes time and, you know, there's frustration. And I don't want to get into the book. I'm going to be bringing the both of you back when the book is uh, published, I believe, in October, correct? Right. So I'm looking forward to that part of it. But, you know, again, I, I, I can imagine what the two of you have been through in regards to you know, emotions flying, obsessive thoughts. And, Clint, how do you handle when an obsessive thought, even today, even with medication and things seem to be balanced, do you have a plan now if you get some obsessive thoughts how to handle them? Well, idle time is is not my friend. Okay. So <laughs> I, I know if I start getting anxious or... Um, and, and and sometimes when you're depressed, the last mm-hmm. thing you want to do is be active. I mean, you just, it's hard to, if you've never uh, suffered with depression, um, or it, it's it's hard to explain, you know, okay, get busy. And I know now I have to do it and I have to push through it. But without the help of medication, I probably couldn't. So I have to keep busy. Um, I'm active anyways. I, I love being outside. Um, we have a small ranch here, so there's always something to do outside. And... You know, even when the weather's cold, I, I'll, I, I'd rather be in my barn than, than in the house. And I think, I think for a while, Joni took that wrong. <laughs> like, what, you don't want to be around me? No, I just need to be out and doing what I do and, and uh, being active. So, uh, you know, any red flags, I kind of I know what to do. I, uh, I'll talk to Joni, too. Even when we're apart, I'm in Calgary and she's at the ranch. Uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll pick up the phone and... I think she knows too that sometimes I can't say I can't peg a reason why I'm going through what I go going through that that time or that hour, but uh, she's there for me, so I know I call her. I know I can call my mother, um, and I've got some a few friends that I can just pick up and start chatting, and they know they know why I called, and we don't even talk about what's wrong with me or anything. It just gets my mind uh, kind of recalibrates everything, my mind and my body, and. So that's a good thing. No, 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 you need that, that, and you and I talked a couple days ago again, and you talked about how important it is for you to be physical, to be working out, to be working on your farm, be working with your horses. This is stuff that people need to do anyway, but for you, it really is a lifeline. Big time. And, and like the working out, um, I, I don't know, so about getting the blood going and, and it, 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 and I did the sooner I do it in the day, the better day I'm probably going to have. You know, John, back to your question to me, um, the biggest help for me was my parents. They were always telling me, this is not Clint's choice to act this way. This is something else that's affecting him, and he needs to get help. And there was always a part of me that knew, okay, this is just not right. This isn't the way he normally acts. Like when he's in his normal state, and there were times where he was just, off the charts, but there was always two hours out of the day where he was pleasant, and it was the the Clint that I always knew. So when things started really just going off kilter, there's a part of you that knows this isn't right. So, I mean, he's not only my husband, but he's my best friend, and, you know, I need to be there to help him get through it because if this is me, he would stand by me and he would help me get through it. The one thing, John, too, is, is there's more people telling Joni to leave me than there were telling her to stay. I believe and, that. And her parents were, if it wasn't for her parents, I, I, she probably would have been convinced to leave by so many people. I don't know, but, you know, she's a strong woman. So she, she, she had a support in, in two great people, her mom and dad, who I, I've gotten to know very well and 
you know, just love the death out of both of them. But, um, you know, the other thing that uh, Joni mentioned is she went to the Betty Ford. Um, they have a family week there where um, she said, and that was the turning point of the darkest time in our relationship. I'm, I'm six months in a rehab. We have very little communication. I've got this anger that I'm in this place anyways. And she didn't, I, she didn't want to talk to me and couldn't really because I was just so violent and, and, uh, and angry. And after that week at the Betty Ford Center for the, uh, basically it's people, uh, spouse, family members. yeah, family members learning about us people, <laughs> the, the, the ones that are afflicted. Well, that's what you need. That's why counseling is there. That's why it's not a weakness in any man, any woman, any relationship that people want to keep together to seek out answers from a third party. It's it's what it's humans, what we need, it's what we should do. We'll be right back in a few moments. Listen to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Aberly. Clint and Joni Malarchik are my guests today. See you in a few. My name is Nicole Zell, and I'm the new host of Soundstage. Every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., we'll be featuring local musicians and upcoming artists. That's Soundstage, every Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m., with me, Nicole Zell, on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. Do you want to know what's going on with your favorite celebrities when it comes to entertainment, fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle? Well, tune in for The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. I'll even catch you up on childhood stars like Boy Meets World actor Will Friedle. By the time I hit 30, I stopped doing on-camera work entirely. I'm having too much fun doing the voiceover stuff. Find out the latest tour and album information from your favorite artists like pop sensation Carmen. When we were working on the album, we had so many songs songs recorded some of them sounded really fun and really Carmen and I think a lot of the stuff that inspires us is really fun check out tips for balancing life as a working parent from people like actress Melissa Joan Hart it was difficult because I was missing them a lot but now we have decided to all get together more and so we've been traveling back and forth across the country as a unit also get motivated to get healthy with experts like Good Morning America contributor Tori Johnson so I realized that rewarding myself with food is akin to an alcoholic celebrating a month of sobriety with a beer. And you never know what some of your favorite stars might say. The last time I was in Philly, they surrounded me and they were like, we love you on MTV, you're our favorite comedian. Aww. I was like, Aww. So you don't want to miss all the action. Check out The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12 right here on WCG 1520 AM. PAMatters.com is the exclusive home for Radio PA's Ask the Governor program, now brought to you by the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. This is Governor Tom Corbett. Each month, we'll talk about the issues that affect you on Ask the Governor. You can submit your questions today by visiting PAMatters.com. Each month, Governor Tom Corbett joins us in studio for a one-hour conversation, including answers to your questions and comments submitted to PAMatters.com. To take part, just go to PAMatters.com and click on the Ask the Governor link at the top of the page. Fill out the form with your brief question or comment and click Submit. It's just that simple. Or you can send a direct email to askthegov at pamatters.com. That's askthegov, G-O-V, at pamatters.com. Stop by pamatters.com today and send in your question. You can also access archived video clips from past Ask the Governor programs and other features from the Radio PA Newsroom. Be sure to bookmark pamatters.com and also join us on the PA Matters Facebook page. pamatters.com. People. Politics. Pennsylvania. 
Hey, I'm Dee Snyder. I'm J.J. French. And we're from Twisted Sister. Sister. And you're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guests are Clint and Joni Malarchik. Clint played 15 years in the NHL. And we are discussing his... He lives with OCD and depression, and his wife Joni's right there beside him, which is the way we would hope it would be on the flip side as well. Uh, Clint, I'm going to give you a couple dates, and then we're going to backtrack right back into them. March 22, 1989, February 10, 2008, October 7, 2008. Uh, kind of a gap, a very large gap between the 89 and uh, February 10, 2008 one. In a weird way, this kind of set the pattern for your life as it is today, all the good that you're doing. And let's jump back to March 22nd, 1989, in Buffalo, playing goalie. There's a scrum in front of the net. Uh, inadvertently, a skate comes up and unfortunately cuts into your neck through your juggler vein. Um, I don't want to go into tremendous detail about this because I think it's just a very small part of who you are and your story. But... In all honesty, all reality, you, you almost died on the ice. And that kind of set some things in motion after that, didn't it? Did that bring out the OCD a little worse, uh, trigger the depression a little worse, and maybe some post-traumatic? Can you say that period of time right afterwards and for a long time to come, you know, was definitely that incident affected you tremendously? I, I, at the time, not knowing a mm -hmm. lot of that, I, I learned this later on, and, and I can talk about that. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, I was taught you get bucked off a horse, you get back on. You get knocked down, you get up. Uh, tough it out. And uh, I think society, you know, is like that with men. Uh, you know, that's how we're raised. And uh, uh, we, that's how we get into a lot of abnormal activities and insecurities as men as well. And you talked right off the top of the show, you know, how do you, what's, how do you measure a man? And uh, after that accident, uh, you know, I, I acted out as a tough guy. And I came back extremely quick. I was back skating. Uh, I, 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 I basically came back and played as soon as the stitches were out. I know. And I remember watching. I'm going, I cannot believe I mean, hockey players are a different breed. I mean, if that happened to a baseball player, he would have retired <laughs> on the spot. You guys come totally different. That's why a lot of people were, I became almost a cult hero in Buffalo because, wow, everybody's saying he should retire, he should take the rest of the season off at least. Uh, he'll never be the same goalie. This and, that. and I had a lot to prove, not just to the people, but to myself. And uh, uh, funny enough, uh, it was the, the option year of my contract. I needed a new contract. <laughs> so, hey, you do what uh, you got to do to get paid, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, then, you know, within two, three years, um, things did go downhill and, you know, pretty quick and pretty deep. I became um, very, very obsessive, compulsive, and I was, you know, obviously predisposed to that. Um, but was functioning pretty well uh, before the accident. And then the, uh, uh, I started to self-medicate with alcohol because it's the only way I could sleep. Um, it's the only way I could knock down the anxiety. And now I'm getting into trouble because I'm using that uh, as my medicine. 
to calm me down or, or you know, it wasn't about getting drunk or anything like that. It was, the, it was like, okay, it's going to calm you down. And alcohol will do some things like that, like a medicine would. Oh, you got to be honest but, about that. Hey, you can put on a good yeah. buzz or something. The world yeah. looks pretty good for a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the depression, the OCD was definitely off the charts. Um, and, you know, that, that's where my, it started to affect my play in a negative way. OCD probably helped me in so many ways to become a, uh, an NHL player, just, you know, the work ethic, obsessive about training and, and being the best I could be, um, you know, it helped me. But now it's going the other way where it's, it's, I can't turn my mind off. There, there was a time there, and I'm not exaggerating, I didn't sleep for 10 days. And I'm still going to the rink at the NHL level and, and trying to stop talks. And that's when uh, I finally uh, saw a. Uh, I had I had a reaction to painkillers mm-hmm. and uh, um, alcohol, and I was hospitalized. And that's when I first uh, saw a doctor that was a psychiatrist and started to divulge where my mind was at and OCD and this and that. And I didn't know I had OCD at that time. That's when I was diagnosed. And uh, um, you know, my play digressed, and I ended up going to the minors. And it was in San Diego, California, and, and playing with the uh, IHL, and that's where I really had a total meltdown uh, uh, after a game with the coach. It was a dear friend of mine and been forever, uh, Rick Dudley, who was an NHL player, coach, GM. And uh, uh, he got me in to see the best doctor, and that's where I'd seen several doctors over the years before San Diego and several medications. So going into this guy... He didn't ask me. He asked me a few questions about growing up, but nothing much. And then he writes me a prescription and says, see you in a week. Hmm. I was like, I'm like, well, wait a minute. You, you don't even want to know about my dad and this and that. <laughs> ah, yeah. He says, I asked you a few questions. That's fine. That's, he goes, it's not that anyways. This is a chemical imbalance. This is not, and I'm like, wow, what? You mean I'm not crazy? You know, I'm not. Uh, he goes, no, his serotonin levels are down. and we'll... So uh, I was on that medication seeing him weekly. The sixth week, uh, I walked in. I said, oh, my God, I drove here. Uh, sun is out. Uh, it's beautiful here in San Diego. I, I mean, this is what I, I feel great. So he tweaked my medication again. On the ninth week of starting the medication, I totally quit obsessing. And that's where I went, oh, my Lord, this is what it feels like to be normal. And I, I lived a real good 12, 15 years on that medication uh, and, and then that led up to the uh, the time where I started to spiral, and Joni was now we're married, and uh, um, we we had a couple pretty good years together. But there was days where I know that she knew, wow, this guy's off the charts with something. But she, you know, she knew I suffered with some things, and I started to drink again at that time to self medicate. You know, it, it's such a sickness that uh, you don't you don't be you're not real rational when you're starting to. Uh, to uh, go through this, and that's when uh, I, I was. Uh, it was October seventh, and um, I had a I had a gun, and I shot myself and survived. That's when uh, uh, I went. I was in a, a coma for a week. I was in the intensive care for about a week, ten days, and then I was released to a rehab facility. And I was in there six months, and that's where I learned from a counselor. Um, she was saying, with this accident, tell me more about this jugular vein accident. I said, oh, that is no big deal. That was a long time ago. And she goes, no, that, that. And so she was trying to convince me after a few days. She'd done some research on the accident and 
how horrific and everything was. She goes, did you not have counseling after that? I said, no. You came back that quick? I said, yeah. <laughs> um, she goes, I got a And I still wasn't buying into it because, no, I, I, I got fucked off. I climbed back on. I was fine. And then I started to think about the two, three years after the accident. And then I went, well, holy smokes, you know, my life really did change um, after that. And I bought in with her, and we did some intensive uh, therapy. Um, that was uh, the turning point of where I am today. That's obvious. I, but I want to step back because I've, I've got to go to Joni um, when, you know, when we talk about October 7, 2008. Because if you read the reports... Um, you know, you're spinning a pretty good tale there, uh, Clint, as far as, you know, this was accidental. Um, you know, even the police, whether they bought into it completely or not, they wrote it off as an accidental shooting without, you know, a decisive answer to it. But it seems the only person who was being straight up and honest about it and was calling it for what it was was Joni. Joni, how difficult was that for you all the way around to come home and find out you know, what had happened, what Clint had just done, and now it looks like it might be kind of just swept away. But you, you really came at it, didn't you? Well, John, yeah. you got she didn't come home to me. Oh. She was standing nose to nose when I did it. Oh, I, oh, I apologize. When I, the, what yeah, I had and, read, it made it sound, this is even more intense now. And, and it was very, you know, there was no suicide, no, we got into a little bit of an argument, and I'm, totally irrational. Wow. I've been drinking and I, I picked the gun up. We're outside by the barn and I've, I've been shooting, you know, tin cans off the fence and this and that. And I was just in such a rage. I, I picked it up and shot it and she watched me. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Joni. Wow. I apologize. Yeah. I didn't want to ask you directly the other day because I did some research and that research was obviously incorrect. But going back to Joni, again, Joni, you seem like the only one that wanted to confront it head on. Well, I, you know, you know, you know, something's wrong, and he had uh, kind of threatened and not threatened to do it before, and um, I hadn't even stayed at home the night before because he was just off the charts, and I'd gone to a Al-Anon meeting that morning, my very first one. Everyone said it would help. Got home, hadn't been answering his phones, and I just walked out, and he was just beside himself, you know, saying, I can't live like this, I can't do this, and he just grabbed it, shoved it under his chin, and went off. And at that moment, I mean, I knew that he, it's kind of both ways. He, I think he wanted to do it, but then um, completely on the other hand, didn't want to do it. Like it was, a, I don't know, like an accident waiting to happen kind of thing. And you just kind of go into fix-it mode. Um, he started walking around. Um, you know, they talk about that flight or um, mode that you get in. He went into flight mode. He started walking and then would sit down and went and put his shirt on and was walking around. He was bleeding and there was, you know, blood coming out of his nose and his chin and telling me, you know, look what you made me do. Don't call anybody. I can fix it. And lucky for me, I had my phone hooked on my hip. And who knows why you act like you do, but I just called 911. And... The first people to show up were the cops, yeah, and they were all over the place. And knowing Clint and knowing the state he was in, I thought, he's just going to want to fight more. He's going to want to argue more. So I sat next to him, put my arm around him, 
and the, with the cops saying, you need to get out of the way, and I thought, that's the last thing I'm going to do, because if he starts to do anything that they don't like, they might shoot him. So I sat there with my arm around him until the paramedics came. They asked me what had happened, and I remember Clint, while he was walking around, kept saying, I can fix this, don't. You know, don't tell anybody what happened. Don't call anybody. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my NHL. I'll never get back in. And you get scared. I'm like, great. If I tell him what happened, he's done. And so I told the cop he was shooting rabbits and it was an accident. And I'm sure they didn't believe it. A friend of mine who was a friend of the main cop that was here I guess she called him up later on and explained our kind of our situation mm. to him. And the cop called me that night after Clint had gotten out of surgery and said, look, the police report is done. It's all filed away. But I want you to know that if you leave the report for the doctors as it is, as it was an accident, as soon as he he is recovered from surgery, he can walk out of that hospital. But if you put it as a suicide attempt then he has to get help, and he's not going to be allowed to walk out of there. He's going to be on suicide watch. So what do you want to do? And without hesitation, I said it was a suicide attempt. Again, that's a, that's a gutsy call uh, on your behalf, big time. But, Clint, i got to step back to you, and I've got to ask you now at that moment, this is all happening real fast, but what's leading up to it, though? Obviously, the, the hours, maybe the last couple days, getting to this point, I, I have a theory with people. I believe most people who try to commit suicide or even succeed, they really don't want to die. They just want the pain to go away. And I don't well, think you, a, could have, you could have said that better. Yeah, they just, I try to give it to people when I say it. If I take your hand and I put it on a stove, you will do everything you can to get your hand off that stove, whether I'm holding it or I'm pounding it down. I think it's the same way when you're so emotionally in pain that you can't escape it. You just want it to go away. Well, and that's what he said. He said right at that moment, he said, I cannot stand to live in my head. I don't know how to get out of it. This is what I want to do, and boom. There's, there's one other uh, factor about a week before that, I think, or no, it's probably longer than that. Uh, my friend Rick Dudley had flown down because I was in distress, and Joni and, and uh, Rick took me to a psychiatrist in Carson City, and I, I was—I'd seen him, I don't know for for a while, anyways, because he had me on heavy, heavy doses of antidepressants. I can and imagine. I, but well, the thing is, why do they have that disclaimer on TV? You know, if you're having suicidal tendencies, uh, taking an antidepressant, well, that kind of sounds, you know. It, 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 they're supposed to help you not have suicidal tendencies, but this guy had way over-prescribed me. When I was at the rehab and saw the psychiatrist there, he said, what were you taking and how much? And I told him, and, you know, as a professional, he's not going to say anything, but I, he questioned me. He goes, are you sure you were taking that much? Are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I got, I got the bottle. I got the prescription, you know, and I, could, I, I read right into it. He's going, well, no wonder you were having suicidal tendencies, you know. Well, the problem, the big problem with uh, mental illness in particular, it's obvious there's no blood test to identify it. There's no hard science to it. A lot of it really is a work in progress. 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately, people like yourself get caught up in something like that. It wasn't your own fault. You didn't, you weren't ODing on the medication. You just had a doctor who prescribed the wrong amounts. And again, unfortunately, it happens a lot. Well, the red flag there, and I, I, I have seen, I, at that time, I had seen enough psychiatrists to know, uh, and this guy was the first guy that every time we talked about uh, my medication or how I'm feeling or bumping it up or changing, he had a book, and he'd look in the book. <laughs> the DSM. And, <laughs> yeah. and he says, okay, on this one, we can go up to such and such amount safely, or, you know, and we can add this to and I'm like, that's the first time I ever seen a doctor always look in the book every time it came up. And I should have known better, but again, I was not in a good state in my head to, to be all that rational. No, you he start was on steps to, to, was on step to make him sleep better because of the medication that he had him on. He was on step in the morning to help him wake up more. I mean, he was constantly taking something. Yeah, it's it becomes a, a vicious cycle. And again, if you don't, unfortunately have a good doctor you get a bad doctor at a bad moment these are things that that happen i always preach to people you and and not that i don't think you were clint but it's just something i'm going to say i always preach to people to be their own advocates they have to go out and educate themselves on anything and everything that has to do with their illness whatever it may be they have to be they have to know as much if not more than the doctors they're dealing with okay i will say that 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 is very true, but when you're in a state like I was, I, I, I don't think I knew how to get on no, no, the internet. No, 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 I'm defending you completely. I, I understand that state very well, too, so I'm not saying, I'm saying it's unfortunate you got caught up into that, but it looks but like you've come to, out of it. To try to find a doctor is unbelievable. I know that when his friend, before his friend Rick Dudley came, I was on the phone every day, almost all day long calling every doctor within 100 miles of us, all the way to Reno, can you see me, will you see my husband? And their answer was, we're not taking any new patients, or yes, we can, we have an opening in March. And well, I was like, I don't have to March. Like, isn't there, a, a, don't you have an emergency thing? Nobody would take him. The one doctor that decided to take him, we were actually with Rick Dudley. We were in a different doctor's office, and as we were supposed to see him, the nurse comes up and says, he can't make it in today, but here's a brochure, and she opens the door and says, have a nice day. And then luckily, well, not luckily, now I look back on it, but the one doctor he did end up seeing called me up because I think I had called him maybe 20 times over the last week begging him to see Clint. He is, he's the one that called me and said, if you've got 10 minutes and you can get here in 10 minutes, I will see him. You know, you got me thinking about an incident just happened. And when uh, the interview ends and I'm home and I'm off the air, which is a couple minutes here, we've got to wrap it up. I'm going to give the both of you a call uh, on a, uh, I believe it was a congressman or a state rep of some sort, recently in Maryland who tried to have his son put into an institution on an emergency basis. And he was told there was no beds available and unfortunately, the kid attacked his father and then killed himself. So, this is this is oh yeah, this is our mental health system here. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is our mental. But unfortunately, I got to wrap it up, which really pisses me off to be honest, because I got so much more. But I do want to say, it appears the two of you have come so far, and you're helping people now. You're doing public speaking together, uh, the the website, and then the book coming out in October. I I really, you guys have really turned a corner. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. And it's been, it, it's always hard, even these type of interviews, uh, especially like you and I did some pre talk. Yep. And I, 
you totally relate to a lot of my uh, issues oh, and yeah. journeys, and and uh, you know it, it's. It's, I invite people. I have a, uh, Joni runs my website, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, malarchuk.com. Uh, you know, it's just I do a little talking on there. And um, no, it's a great website. Yeah, my wife, get, Joni. I'm sorry, I got to Joni. My wife loved your wedding gown. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Listen, may I give the two of you a call later on over the weekend? Absolutely. Appreciate thank you. It. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guests were Clint and Joni Malarchik. We talked about Clint's experiences with OCD and depression. Please go to their website and look for the book coming out in October. Thanks. You come full circle, now you're home.